0: Hello and welcome to Farmarama,
1: episode 35. This month we begin in California, where they are paying farmers to sequester carbon, using practices proven to increase soil health. We head to the home of democracy to hear how Greek citizens are bringing seed saving back to the people. In Somerset, we get some tips on starting a market garden, and we end up back in the USA this time deep in Indiana, to hear how one college is using the power of education to transform the landscape of the Midwest.
2: Charles Chambry is a longtime grower, farm manager, and soil conservationist. Nowadays, his main role is vineyard conservation coordinator at Napa County Resource Conservation District. His work sees him leading the implementation of California's Healthy Soils Programme, a scheme which compensates farmers for increasing their soil health with the goal of sequestering carbon and increasing water retention. The quantities sequestered are estimated using CARB-GHG quantification methodology and tools. For example, one farm in Merced, California,
1: is being paid $50,000 to sequester 345.6 tonnes of greenhouse gases per year. They'll do this by moving to minimum tillage on farm, planting multi species leguminous cover crops, and spreading compost annually, all on their 70 acres. We were keen to share about this as an example of a healthy soils farming initiative already in place. It's very relevant as the UK government rethinks our farming subsidy system here. Charles told us a bit of the history, how this project is the first of its kind and how the initiative is evolving as it goes. By the way, CDFA is the California Department for Food and Agriculture.
3: The Healthy Soils Initiative is one of a kind. I think right now, off the top of my head, I can't even explain how it came about. But I know know that there was something passed in 2015 by the state of California. I think it was in 2016, we have the soil There's like some soil action plan of California, and this is where the soil, through the Soil Health Initiative, was birthed the uh, Healthy Soils Program to fund growers, uh, landowners around the state. So I think it's a great program, and it's just evolving. You know, there's been some things about it that some of us have um, disagreed with in the actual language of the grant and the um, requirements behind it, but CDFA has been pretty responsive to these comments, and they're starting to shift some of the requirements, like the first round of funding, the compost application requirements were not consistent with or, or practical, um, and you had to apply compost at a certain rate for three years in a row every year, and we, we generally uh, recommend compost applications on a much larger application and with a much larger interval. Um, So maybe like once every five years, maybe even once every 10 years, depending on the size of the the application. And some of the soil uh, monitoring that they were requesting to prove that there was carbon sequestration was kind of unrealistic. Like they wanted it to happen every year. So um, and again, it's dynamic. So it might take three, four or five years to see like a small response. You know, it's, it's just interesting how the conversation shifts. Like we used to talk about, like, right before Trump was hired that, you know, we could sequester carbon and mitigate climate change through soil management. And now, like, the USDA isn't allowed to use that kind of terminology because climate change doesn't exist or something like that, you know? So that's the interesting thing. But, um, it is, it is kind of the first time that it's been, like, recognized at a state level that this is a real tool for, I guess, mitigating climate change. And that's pretty profound. We don't do justice to this kind of work when we try to look at it just through one lens. We've understood for decades sustainable regenerative soil management practices and what it does to the whole ecological Uh, Function of the land, you know, from storing water to reducing erosion to enhancing crop productivity to providing habitat and clean water, to animals and people. So um, that's really the lens that I'm going to continue walking down. Like it doesn't need to be a climate lens or a carbon lens, but it's about the whole system. And I think this Healthy Soils Initiative is looking through multiple lenses. I don't think it's just about carbon but sometimes we seem to get caught up in talking about that. Um, but the Healthy Soils Initiative does state that climate solutions can occur through soil management. like That is known, so that is certainly a focus. And maybe it's the driving focus that I'm maybe a little reluctant to, to have that focus. But What I believe is that we're in a paradigm that we need to break out of. And even some of us who feel like we're have broken out of that paradigm we still have to step back and recognize that sometimes we're still looking through the a a lens of like traditional farming since world war ii you know what seems to be the way it should look in particular we we tend to use our eyes to look at the land like in, in on the farm and things being clean cookie cutted we have to step back sometimes and think about what is the end result and what does that mean, and how do we shift our, you know, conditioning away from that? You know, you go out there, and you're just trying to get things done. It's like a day-to-day, but sometimes you just got to stop, and you think, oh, I got to mow this, and I got to do that, and I got to do that, and sometimes I stop and go, but why? Why do I have to mow that area over there? And I start thinking about it. I'm like, I don't need to mow that area. I can let that just be, you know? It's just this estate. We want to keep things mowed and keep things clean. So biologically, and like you're looking through the carbon lens, you want to be able to sequester as much carbon as you can. You need chlorophyll to do that. So if you mow something down, especially in California, where, by the way, it doesn't rain for like five to six months out of the year, as soon as you mow something, it is pretty much dead. You know, And and just another quick example is that we've noticed that when you let grasses and other things grow, quite tall, the dew is like captured, and this is just anecdotally, everybody wants things measured and researched, but we see out on these properties where we let covers grow real tall, um, that atmospheric moisture is condensing, and that we find that the topsoil stays more moist in these no-till environments, and you have more biological activity as you get deeper into the season, it's warming up. And you still have a lot of moisture that's actually being grabbed from the air. So just like redwoods do that, you know, they've, they've found that redwoods have the fog drip and we can get that off of different covers. So that's what I mean of opening that lens. If you want to capture carbon, you've got to think like carbon. <laughs> and so, um, I guess that's my long message there.
1: Charles also helped create the first ever carbon farm plans for four vineyards in Napa County, working with their partners, the Carbon Cycle Institute. You can hear more about these carbon farm plans and details of how they monitor soil health and carbon sequestration in this month's short.
2: Peliti is a voluntary non-profit organization based near drama in Greece. It works to preserve agricultural biodiversity through the collection and exchange of traditional seeds. Its annual Seed Exchange Festival has inspired similar events across Europe, but it all started with one young man and a startling realization.
4: Peliti's a uh, seed came uh, as an idea to Panagiotis Aynatoudis, who is the founder and the coordinator of uh, the community, about 20 or 25 years ago, when he realized that uh, he wasn't able to find uh, all the varieties of, let's say, corn that he used to eat as a child. Suddenly, he's 20, 30 years old, and he realizes that there's only one type of uh, corn variety left. And he started wondering what happened, what are all the other varieties. On his own, he started traveling around Greece, meeting people in villages, searching and gathering old seed varieties in order to save them somehow. This has gradually led into the creation of a huge seed archive, which uh, needs a lot of uh, resources to be maintained, although the purpose is not at all creating a seed archive or a seed bank, because seeds are meant to be grown and cultivated and uh, able to evolve. And this is uh, one aspect that uh, maybe we should shed some light on, that seed banks, although uh, people use it as an argument or politicians use it as an argument against the necessity of seed saving, are not a solution on their own because of what I said before. Seeds are not meant to be kept in a refrigerator uh, dug under the, the earth they should be able to evolve, de- develop together with us and together with climate, together with the soil and the earth. Because they can do it, whereas the industrial varieties cannot do it. So right now, uh, Peliti is consisted of 20 local groups all over Europe and also there is a group in Sofia, Bulgaria. We are all volunteers right now. During the past years, uh, Pelidi is actively involved and networked with uh, other groups of seed savers around the world.
5: Do you think that organizations like Peliti also do some sort of politics as well?
4: You know, traditional varieties is the reason why, is what our food was based on until very recently, solely, exclusively on traditional seed varieties until 60, 70 years ago when the big industry came and provided uh, farmers with uh, high yield. Varieties, but they go hand in hand with agrochemicals and soil exhaustion because they have a limited genetic database and they cannot survive a natural attack. On the other hand, traditional varieties have a broad genetic uh, base. They can survive pests and diseases by evolving. They might not be as productive as the industrial ones, but it has been proven that if a farmer, and this is uh, what's important for local economy, and it, it's also a huge political issue. If a farmer is able to keep his own seed, which is not always easy, you know, seed legislation is not always very um, in favor of uh, accessibility of seeds. Well, if a farmer is able to keep, is allowed and able to keep its own seed, he doesn't have to use fertilizers and pesticides, agrochemicals in general, and uh, can sell its products directly, he can have a totally viable farming business, and even Earn 10 times more than a farmer that buys seed, buys pesticides and fertilizers and buys through intermediaries. Balidi is a community that uh, is trying to focus mainly on um, raise awareness and grow a network, a community of people that uh, support each other in, in seed saving, having in mind all these aspects and the ultimate one is our own our, our health, apart from the political one or the economical one for farmers. The health issue is something that connects, connects everyone. Uh, it would be very interesting if we could focus on this aspect. For the moment, we're mainly trying to focus on um, encourage farmers and professional farmers to grow more of uh, local varieties, traditional varieties, And be able to improve them the way our ancestors did for many years uh, so that more professional farmers uh, prefer them for their benefits and gradually this might lead into uh, creating a network of uh, committed professional farmers that face their their farms as a as an ecosystem of soil and plants and people that each one supports each other for uh, a better life During last year, Pellitti, with the support of Forum Synergy, is working towards the direction uh, of affecting seed policy so that traditional varieties can be accessible legally. The legal framework doesn't allow at this moment. It is said in a way that selling traditional varieties is not allowed because it demands uniformity and stability in order to sell seeds. So that uniformity and stability is something that only industrial varieties can achieve traditional varieties cannot do it because they evolve as we said so it's a very crucial issue and our main efforts right now a big part of our efforts of peliti's efforts is focused uh, on this and we also have an annual seed festival every year a week after easter where people from all over greece and now from all over the world come and exchange seeds We're doing workshops, people exchange experiences, not only on seed issues, but on land, access to land, and new farming practices. And we learn from one another. It's like a community that each one teaches the other. As with all collective efforts, when different people gather, we have differences, but having this common ground in mind... Uh, we try to find the connections what unites us and uh, step on it and uh, evolve and continue.
6: You
5: seem to give a lot of emphasis on the human-to-human relationships and interaction, uh, direct communication, knowledge exchange. I think the motto of Pelliti is from hand to hand and from soul to soul.
4: From hand to hand and from heart to heart.
5: Do you think that there is space for new technologies to help catalyze this this, this, this strive for seed freedom, for food democracy, for solidarity based land use, and so on?
4: I think that new technologies are necessary, especially now that the food industry is so aggressively uh, addressing farmers. So, if we want to create something different, we have to use new technologies that facilitate uh, what we do and our purpose. We already use technology that facilitates communication with each other within the country because we are in different parts of Greece, so it's necessary to use like, the simplest form of uh, internet communication. We c- could use technologies to improve our seed archive, monitor and control it somehow so that other people can uh, easily have access to what we have, maybe create a commons of uh, our seed archive so that other people can share so it's a tool in our hands, and I think it's necessary for us to to use it effectively.
2: Thanks to Pavlos and Oli from the GROW Observatory for sending us this recording. The GROW Observatory is an EU-wide citizen science project which helps people to grow food and care for their soils using regenerative practices. We have six other interviews from the project on our SoundCloud page, including an extended version of this one. Many of these interviews haven't been featured on the main show. So if this has sparked your interest, visit SoundCloud to hear more. We hope you enjoy listening to Farmarama as
1: much as we enjoy making it. A lot of work goes into each episode, so we're always really grateful for support. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, or if you know someone you think might be, please do get in touch with us through our website. Farmorama.co.
2: Charles Dowding is a UK-based pioneer of no-dig market gardening. We first featured him talking about no-dig way back in episode 18. This month, Charles tells us how he went about planning and creating his beautiful no-dig market garden, Homemakers, in Somerset. And he also has a few tips on how to keep your garden weed-free
6: at Homemakers in Somerset, southwest England. We've just had a weekend of lovely thundery rain and the garden is just looking incredibly abundant and also very beautiful at this time of year. Uh, When I arrived here, it was an, an empty plot with just weeds growing and some brambles and nothing edible. It was massively overgrown on the southwest side by an old windbreak of tall spruce trees. So I had them cut down, which opened me up to wind quite a bit and I thought well I want something edible that might give a bit of wind protection anyway and decided in the end actually to plant a line of apple trees so that was a good location for planting some trees and if I'm planting trees um, I was hoping they'll make some fruit so I chose apple trees on M26 rootstock planted one year maintenance so that's the cheapest way to you can buy a tree and it's quicker to plant just a small hole thoroughly mulched and they're now four years old and already taller than me, which actually as tall as I want them to be, and I uh, keep pruning them twice a year, and that's looking good along the southwest side of the property. And then I also put, was putting in perennial plants like rhubarb and perennial kale and fruit bushes, raspberries, uh, that was all happened before Christmas in, in the first autumn here. And then the next decision to make was where to put the greenhouse and polytunnel, and what I didn't do though was I didn't have an overarching inch-by-inch inch plan of the whole plot, because there's always a bit of getting to know a place. I needed to get it working and I wanted to be cropping that summer, but I didn't want to have everything mapped out before I'd really got to know the place a bit. Mm -hmm. So Steph McCartney was helping. We worked out where to put the greenhouse in the polytunnel, which was governed also by what we found in the soil, because this had been a nursery before. There's still concrete foundations here and my original place i wanted to put the polytunnel we actually couldn't because there was some big lumps of concrete still there so you know that's about how you have to adapt to what you find and you Mm -hmm. can't just sit down with a pen and paper and draw out a lovely design i put the perennials in first because they're the long term crop that take longer to establish and so i wanted to get them in the ground just as soon as i could really annuals you know you don't need to start sowing until the spring. So. There wasn't so much rush for that. And then after that, through the winter, once I got my greenhouse polytunnel in place, it was just making beds one by one really, with an idea of where things were going. And then another key decision is where to put the compost heaps, and so I put them in the middle, basically. That makes the most sense. And just adapting to the site as I went along. One of the things I'm loving every year, actually, even after the rain we've had, there's just hardly any weeds. And how easy that makes the gardening and how I can concentrate, therefore, on the sowing and planting and making it beautiful as well. And we're going through taking off lower leaves of any plants that are starting to decay. And that gives less habitat for slugs, also the way we pick the lettuce. So generally, things always look pretty immaculate. And you definitely can have a productive and a beautiful garden at the same time. And it's a very nice place to be.
1: And so what is your key tip <laughs> for the no weeds?
6: No dig. That's... <laughs> (laughs) Undisturbed soil covers itself less, so you just get less weeds growing. And compost mulch helps. It's easier to pull weeds out of compost. And the other key one is a weed strike in the spring. So when you see the first shimmer of green in March or early April, run a hoe very lightly through no deeper than an inch and you're only hoeing in the compost, you're not hoeing in the soil. And that way you can kill hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of weeds very quickly in a few minutes rather than letting them grow.
1: Mary Lee Sustainable Farm is part of the Environmental Learning Center at Goshen College in Indiana. You can drive for hundreds of miles, passing vast expanses of corn and soybeans, with a tree here and there. But on arriving at Mary Lee, you're submerged into a lush prairie and woodland landscape, with lakes all around. This is a working farm, buzzing with diversity, a place for students to see just what's
2: possible in the Midwest. John Mishler is Mary Lee's Director of Agroecology, and Ellie Schertz is the Assistant Farm Manager. They explained why the farm is a key part of their environmental center, and why it's so valuable to the college. And we also heard from two of the former students who have chosen to return to Mary Lee and volunteer there for the summer.
7: So I'm John Mishler. I'm the Director of our Agroecology Summer Intensive, which is a summer semester, teaching college students agroecological methods and um, in the Midwest and I'm also a professor in the sustainable food systems um, major here we have at Goshen College and I'm also oversee the farm. Uh multifaceted job with a lot of interesting and awesome challenges. So we manage 100 acres here as the farm as a subset of the Merrily um, Nature Preserve and we manage um, prairies, we manage different types of um, woodland environments. We manage savannas, we manage wetlands, we manage growing spaces, we manage warm season and cool season grasses. And all of this is to provide agricultural products. So we derive food from the land, but we can also, who says that if you produce food, you can not also have these beautiful landscapes to enjoy. And so we really put to work the agroecological approach, letting these landscapes work together Um, in order to do some of the work for us in order to raise this food and enjoy living here. And so students that come to Goshen College, whether they're at Goshen College or whether they're coming from other colleges for our summer semester, I think this is a very unique opportunity to practice this really diversified land-sharing agroecological approach amongst the epicenter of um, corn and bean farming here in middle America.
0: So my name is Ellie Schertz, and I am the Assistant Farm Manager here at Mary Lee Sustainable Farm. The main educational program that happens here at Mary Lee Sustainable Farm is the Agroecology Summer Intensive. Um, It's a semester's worth of classes and hands-on experience that happens here on the farm. Students live here for the summer, and they get college credit. Um, They take classes in soils and vegetable crop management, uh, animal husbandry, and then more um, sociology-type classes on food systems. Out of the farm, we run a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, where we offer shares to Goshen College students and faculty and staff on campus. Um, I help run the CSA, so once a week I'll harvest food here um, and the students here would help grow that food. We pack it all up and I deliver it to campus so that they don't have to make the drive here. It just makes the food more accessible. It's a way for them to connect if they can't physically get here. Last fall about half of our share was student households. Um, And they really enjoyed it. They made community meals out of it and um, they were excited about the produce every week.
5: Uh, I'm Mandira Pantha. I'm actually from Nepal, but I'm here in Goshen, Indiana to study environmental science. The first thing that attracted me to Goshen was Merely sustainable farm. And I'm really interested in learning about how sustainability
8: comes together into agriculture. I'm Jess Raffle. I am studying environmental science at Goshen College with a concentration in agroecology. Last summer I came here and took some summer classes on agroecology, and this summer I'm back uh, focusing on tree care and how that plays into an agroecological system. In working with the system and being able to learn while doing, I think that's something that a lot of other colleges don't do a lot of, is just giving freedom to the students. And that's very valuable as a in a learning environment.
5: You get to make mistakes, you get to learn from them, and that's a really important thing if you want to pursue a future or a career in the field that you're interested in. I was really surprised at how the whole system functions. and. When you start farming you become amazed every single day by every little sprout or every little flower that starts you plant a seed and then you also learn to be patient as you watch the seed grow and you're just so worried about it and it's it does sound ridiculous but you start to care more about not just plants or animals but also about people around you
8: one of the things that has surprised me is just how big some of the problems that we're dealing with are with the environment and how these really are systems problems. There are many aspects of um, the environment that need to change and also the way that people operate in order to see a more sustainable future in agriculture and food systems in general.
5: Uh, Even if you don't have any way to produce food on your own. Learn where your food comes from, how you can help make the entire food industry better. How do you treat your waste that comes from food?
8: That's a really big thing. Something I think that everyone should hear is that you can make a difference. Just start learning about the systems, growing your own food, getting involved, get your hands in the dirt, and you'll start to care. And
0: that's what we need education is what has driven the spot at mary lee we're here to educate the public as well as college students um, that's why we're here so we have all kinds of projects going on all the time um, and it it's an exciting place um, sometimes it's a little overwhelming to have so many projects to juggle but it's exciting when students come in and, and are excited about what's happening and they tell other students and and some students come back for more than one summer maybe they're a student one summer and they come back for an internship because they're so excited about it um, I was actually a student here several years ago and was happy to get a job here so it's a place that uh that I think excites people gets people excited about life and and about growing food.
7: We keep a close eye. We really like to stay connected with agriculture as it's known globally. And so, you know, we keep abreast of what's going on in the UK and the EU. Um, We have a lot of work going on in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And, you know, we, we stay connected to what's going on in India. And I'm constantly amazed at the innovation that, folks are starting to reimagine agricultural systems. And it's a a phrase that can sometimes seem a little overused, but I think it's still vital, putting the culture back into agriculture. And so I really appreciate these perspectives that not only understand the utility of agriculture in producing food to feed the world, but also this idea that agriculture as a way of life and food as not only, you know, uh, sustenance, but intertwined within the culture and what makes us who we are. And I've been encouraged with what I've been seeing in the UK. I've been encouraged what I've been seeing here in the States and across the world. And I love to, I love to meet folks who are working on similar questions. And yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think we're moving in a good direction.
2: This episode was produced by Abby, Joe and me, Katie. Thanks to the team at Grow Observatory for sending in the recording from Greece. And thank you as always to Annie Landless for keeping everyone up to date on social media. And to all of our guests and listeners. The Farmer a theme music comes from Owen Barrett.